Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Redeemer Community Church, our 6 p.m. service. It's a pleasure to be with you all. If I haven't met you, my name's Connor Coscrey. I'm the youth ministry director here at Redeemer, and it is my joy to open God's word with you tonight. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the different dimensions of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Think of Genesis 1 and the creation account like a pyramid, where God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he goes to the land and the sea, the trees and the plants, the animals, all driving towards man, the crown of his creation in his image. Tonight, we're going to zoom into the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, it's the, uh, the same creation account, just told from a different angle. And what we're going to see is uh, if creation in chapter 1 was a pyramid, chapter 2 is like a circle, where man is at the center. From this point forward, man will be the focal point in God's story. So if you would, read with me Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 18. And do listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord, had, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Lord, we thank you for gathering us this evening to spend time in your word. We're reminded afresh that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are the God of the universe who created and upholds all things by the word of your power. Yet you promise to meet with us even now in this space tonight. So we ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit to know you and love you with all that we are. And Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. One of my favorite books or series of books is C.S. Lewis's The Space Trilogy. <clears throat> They're fascinating accounts. They, they, they chronicle the story or the adventures of Ransom, the, uh, the main character, as he's thrust to various planets around the solar system. It's C.S. Lewis's take on sci-fi as he imagines what, uh, what life on other planets are. My favorite book in the trilogy is the second book called Paralandra. It chronicles, it tells the adventures of Ransom's visit to uh, Venus. 
Um, and and Paralandra is interesting. It's it's unique. It's uh it's it's a perfect world. It's pristine. Everything is working in harmony. Uh, and much of the story uh, is uh, revolves or resol- yeah revolves around um, Ransom's interaction with presumably the only human figure on the planet, the Green Lady. The Green Lady uh, is is also a very interesting figure, and their conversations are fascinating and frustrating. For instance, uh, at one point, um, Ransom, they're walking, and much of, the, much of the book is about them walking on this quest, and uh, Ransom's walking, and he, he gets hungry. And so he reaches up and grabs a fruit, and he eats it, and he's completely satisfied. And then, without even thinking, instinctually, he reaches up and grabs another fruit, and the green lady looks at him. It's like, Ransom, why are you grabbing another fruit? You're completely satisfied. And he's perplexed. He doesn't know. He doesn't know why he's done this. Uh, or another conversation, they're, they're walking, and uh, Ransom makes an, an offhanded remark. He says, well, you know, it must be nice. You have everything here, everything you could ever want. But isn't it hard being alone? And the green lady looks at him and says, what is alone? You see, what's unique about Perilandra is that it's yet to experience a fall. Everything on the planet is perfect. Um, it's, it's working in sync. It's, uh, it's harmonious. Um, there's nothing wrong. There's trust, no fear, no suspicion, no concern, wholeness, complete integrity. And this is the world that we meet in Genesis 2. God has made a perfect world for Adam. He lives in the perfect place. He has the perfect job and the perfect relationship with God. Nothing is lacking, right? And then we get to verse 18. And we read that there's still one thing to be done. Adam is alone, and that's not good. Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, show us God's gracious and generosity, his his gracious and generous giving to the man. He sees the man in his need, and he acts by giving him a suitable partner, a compliment, so that together they can uh, fulfill their given purpose and enjoy the bounty of God's good in creation. Now, before we move on, I want to I challenge you that the world that we're, uh, we're entering, the Genesis 2 world, is perfect. We don't live in that world. So rather than letting our preferences guide us as we read the text, I want to invite you to walk with me in awe as we see God showing his, his gracious generosity as he sees man need, man's need and he acts. So let us consider this passage tonight under two headings. And this is playing off verse 18. First, it's not good that the man should be alone. And second, God makes, makes him a helper fit for him. So first, it's not good that the man should be alone. If you would read with me verses 18 through 20. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So after placing Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, 
God looks up, he surveys the landscape, and he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. What a remarkable statement. Everything up into this point has been good. Heavens and earth, good. Land and sea, good. Plants, animals, good. God has fashioned the man from the dust of the earth and personally breathed life into his body. Yet, the Lord God looks up and he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Do you realize what this means? This means that God has created humanity in such a way that we are created for relationship, for relationship with others like us. Adam had a perfect quiet time for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, yet he still needed a friend. And notice that it isn't Adam who recognizes that he's alone. Remember, this is the perfect world. He, like the green lady, doesn't know what alone is. It's God in his infinite wisdom who looks up and he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. It is God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's always existed in perfect harmony, perfect relationship with one another, that looks up and says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Verses 19 and 20, uh, they provide this brief interlude where, where this really strange uh, um, picture where God brings all the animals before Adam and Adam provides names. Um, read with me again, 19 and 20. Uh, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This is a picture of, uh, of Adam exercising dominion. Joel and Dwight preached on this uh, several weeks back, that uh, part of being made in the image of God means that we are to exercise dominion over the creatures of the earth. Um, so here we see Adam being, uh, playing the part of a king. He's sitting there. God brings the animals before him, and he gives them a name. Uh, but this is more than just Adam naming creatures. This is showing him that he's, uh, he's a social being, that he's made for fellowship with someone like him. All he sees here is difference. It's not good for the man to be alone. God has created humanity. He created Adam and he created uh, all of humanity. He created us for fellowship with one another, to, to know others and to be known. Don't you think if this were true in the perfect Garden of Eden, then it's especially true in our world today? The emotional response to being alone is loneliness. And it's to no surprise that in just a few verses, when the fall comes, when sin enters the world, that relational brokenness is going to be one of its first casualties. The enemy, he loves to isolate. He wants to, to draw us away from a relationship with others who are going to encourage us and build us up. And he wants to speak lies. He wants to say, nobody can understand me. Deep relationships are way too hard. If I, if I get into, a, into these deep relationships, establish deep friendships, and it's going to hold me back from what I want to do in life. I'm the, I'm the captain of my own ship here. I've got goals. I need to, I need to meet those. 
And the enemy wants to convince us that, 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 that entering into deep relationship with others is going to hold us back. In an interview, actress Anne Hathaway, she said, quote, Loneliness is my least favorite thing about life. The thing that I am most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for or someone who will care for me. Maybe Hathaway's words resonate with you as much as they do with me. We're terrified of the prospect of being alone. And unfortunately, studies show that Americans are lonelier than ever. Listen to a few uh, headlines from various news outlets. The Washington Post, quote, Surgeon General says there's a loneliness epidemic, end quote. The USA Today, quote, young people report more loneliness than the elderly, end quote. The Boston Globe, quote, the biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. The Atlantic, quote, loneliness begets more loneliness. The New York Times, how social isolationism, or how social isolation is killing us. One thing I've noticed uh, recently is how difficult the transition from college to the working world is socially. Uh, it's as if right at graduation, uh, and maybe some of you can, uh, uh, can attest to this, loneliness is just crouching at the door. But should this surprise us? Think about college. It's literally built around us having friends. Let's throw, a th let's throw thousands of people all the same age in all the same place and give them a bunch of activities to do. It's hard. The transition's difficult because the working world isn't interested in curating an environment for us to have friends. You settle into a job and you work. And there's nothing wrong with this. Don't hear me say that there's something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with this, but it does mean that if you, as we grow older, as we transition in life, that our sphere of friends is likely to narrow. Uh, studies show that uh, uh, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, uh, though these, this, these are the decades that you're surrounded by the most people, they're often the most lonely decades for people. As we looked at uh, last week studying Sabbath rest, we're all busy. But along with our busyness, we're becoming increasingly disconnected. Our relationships are several, but they're superficial. Our brains and our hearts claim to be overwhelmed, but at the bottom, we're often painfully lonely. It was not good for Adam to be alone. God made him, made Adam to need other people. We need other people. And praise God that God does not leave us in our loneliness, but he meets us in our loneliness. Psalm 68 describes God as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families he leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Did you catch that? He sets the lonely in families. What a beautiful phrase. In this psalm, God is praised for being our father, our defender, our liberator. He sets us free from the prison of our loneliness into the freedom of family life. And of course, God is not talking about the male or the, the husband-wife-child system here. He's talking about the family of God. To quote author Tim Keller, quote, 
Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friendship is not a result of sin. God meets our loneliness, that ache for connection that we all have. And he places us in his family, a place where we can be loved and where we can be known. Therefore, I encourage you to pursue covenant membership. We're going to celebrate that later this evening, where you welcome people into your lives, where you commit and covenant with the body to let people into your life, to know you and to love you, even in your mess. Immerse yourself in classes and groups to study God's word. God's word is meant to be studied in fellowship with other believers. It's meant to be studied in community. Go to home group. Get involved in your home group. I know it's hard. There are weeks that Shelly and I, my wife, don't want to open our doors, but we do every week because we need our people. We need, <laughs> they're giggling over there. Um, uh, we need our people to come every week and to remind us of the gospel that we've forgotten. And you need that as well. These are good things. All of these are good things, and they will help you feel as if you belong because you do hear that. You do belong. But we can't be surprised when the church, even the family of God, when it doesn't meet all of your needs and all of your longings for connection and love and friendship. Because ultimately, the church is a community in hopeful waiting. This is not our home, this is not where our citizenship resides. It's a community that's not defined by its perfection, but by its commitment to God's promise that he loves his church and will one day fully redeem it. Can you feel the tension in these verses? Can you feel it that God knit us together in such a way that we are made for relationship, that we're made for connection with other people? We need other people just as Adam needed a friend in the perfect garden. These verses show us that even had humanity not ever rebelled, that the need for relationship would still be a part of what it means to be human. God made Adam to need other people. And we are the same. So do we. We need other people. So now let's turn our attention. Let's look at God's solution to Adam being alone. God saw that Adam was alone. and He said, no good. And so he, uh, he gave Adam a companion, a helper, a compliment, and gives him a wife. Um, so read with me verses uh, 21 through 25. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It is not good that the man should be alone, so God provides him a helper, Finally, the tension of verses 18 through 20 breaks when God makes the woman. 
Verses 21 and 22 show God as the divine surgeon where he he causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He opens him up. He takes one of his ribs. He makes it into the woman. God doesn't simply speak the woman into existence. What's being talked about here is he builds the woman from Adam's rib. Elsewhere in the Bible, this word is described as the building of the tabernacle. Or God is the builder of, the, of his heavenly residence. And here it carries a relational sense where God is showing his active involvement in building the human family. The woman is created from Adam, and this is the kind of helper that God has had in mind from the beginning. And I realize that it's difficult for us to, uh, to hear the word helper. It's difficult for us to read that word. It can seem negative or demeaning. However, that's not what's meant here. The Hebrew word uh, for, uh, for helper is azer, and it, it actually carries a military sense, um, meaning most trusted ally. This is the kind of helper that man needs, that the man needs, a most trusted ally. And besides that, it can't imply inferiority because God uses it to describe himself. Psalm 54 says that, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. So God builds the woman, and then he brings her to the man. One of my favorite parts of being a pastor is uh, that I get to be with you all during your most important and personal days. Uh, my, my, my favorite is to officiate weddings. And I remember the, uh, the first wedding that I officiated, um, following the service, I met my wife Shelly in the, in the back, and, uh, and she could see I was, I was giddy, I was excited, I was beaming, and um, I didn't get married, but I, I was there. And, uh, and, and she, was like, she was like, that was fun, wasn't it? And I, was, and I was like, what a joy. I could do this every weekend. She was like, well, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, it is a holy privilege to stand at the front of a sanctuary next to a groom and watch as a father leads his daughter down the aisle. Most fathers have the, uh, the same, uh, similar emotions. You can tell their, their faces, they're filling with all of these unique memories and emotions and burdens of being her dad. And it's, it's swelling up in this moment, it's pouring out of her, their eyes, And his tear-stained cheeks are a testimony that he's really loved. This is his daughter, after all. He loves her. And now he's letting her go. This is the kind of love that we see here. We often want to relegate love to merely an emotion, but love means activity. Love sees needs and attempts to meet them. And look at the type of love, look at the type of activity that God shows us in making the woman. God caused a deep sleep. He took one of the man's ribs. He closed up its place. He made it, built it into a woman, and he brought her to the man. God is showing us his love as he forms, as he shapes, and as he breathes life into the woman and brings her to Adam. God is like the father who walks his daughter down the aisle as he brings Eve, as he brings the woman to Adam to enjoy the most profound and blessed of human relationships, the marriage between the man and the woman. 
and Adam erupts in joy. Listen to his song. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I want us to, to remember back to that, uh, that strange scene where Adam is, uh, is naming the animals. Um, and imagine him, he's sitting on a stump, and God is parading the animals before him, and this is intentional. He's, he's doing this to, uh, to show Adam, because as each, at, each creature that comes before Adam, Adam is noticing, that's not like me. That's not like me. Well, that's not like me. All he sees is difference. James Boyce said, before Eve could be prepared for Adam, Adam must be prepared for Eve. Which means that uh, what's happening here is that after going through this exercise of God leading the animals before Adam, uh, uh, he, and, and saying, Adam, is this like you? And Adam's saying, no, not like me. Then God causes a deep sleep to go upon him. And when he finally wakes and he sees Eve, what does he see? He sees, like me, at last, like me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, same of my same. And she shall be called like me because she came from me. Look. Men and women are different, but God's first word on male-female relationships is not what's different about us, but it's what we share. What Adam never knew he needed, he now had, and he would never let her go. Creation's been driving to this point, the crown of creation being man, now them being together, joined together in that most blessed relationship, in that most profound relationship of marriage, creation has reached its pinnacle. It's reached its point of completion. And then God gives us his plan for marriage in verses 24 and 25. It says, Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is a picture of peace. This is a picture of shalom, of the world being at rest. The man and the woman are at perfect ease with one another and with God. They're in the perfect place, in the perfect relationship with God. They have the perfect jobs, and they have the perfect person. Everything was working in harmony. There's trust, no fear, no concern, no suspicion wholeness, complete integrity. And that's what it means when we see that they were naked and not ashamed. Again, that's a picture of this peace, wholeness, complete integrity. Isn't this the kind of relationships and friendships that you and I, that we are looking for? Where the other person looks at us and despite our mess, thinks that we're wonderful where there's trust, where there's no fear, where someone says, I know everything about you, and I think you're lovely. I'm never going to leave you. I'm utterly devoted to you. As we've seen, there's a tension in this text. There was, uh, it was not good that the man should be alone, so God provided a suitable helper, a, a compliment for Adam. Specifically, he provided him a spouse. But a spouse isn't promised to everyone. 
No, in fact, later the Apostle Paul, a single man himself, would say that in many cases it's better to remain unmarried. And we're not naive to the fact that in a post-fall world, even the best of marriages possess brokenness and suffering and hurt. At our core, what we want is to be completely known and totally loved. Marriage is a wonderful gift. Hear that. But a spouse is not the ultimate answer to you and I being alone. So what then is the solution? The good news of the gospel is that God has not left us alone. God sends his best for us, not because of our lovableness, but because of his love and his grace. God sees us in our nakedness and our shame, and he sends us his son to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we deserve. Apart from Christ, we are alone and we are left to ourselves. In Christ, we are adopted. We are known. We are accepted. We are sons and daughters of the King. We are his bride. In Christ, we're given a family, but more than that, he gives us himself. Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, the helper that we need, who empowers us to live as the new creations in Christ that we are. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the gift of his bride, we can push one another and guide one another to be satisfied in Christ alone. And through the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can cultivate friendships, relationships that are not built on what you can provide for me, but they're built on grace, loving people in their mess just as Christ loves us. Even still, Jesus knew that we would grow weary, that we would need a reminder of his promises. So he gave his people a meal, and we celebrate this meal tonight. The Lord's Supper reminds us that God sees our need, and he acts by giving his son. The promises held out in this bread and this wine point to a future of wholeness, of integrity with the Lord and with the world and with each other. This meal also reminds us that we have not arrived, that we are still a community in hopeful waiting, but that God has not left us alone. But instead, he has provided us a foretaste, a foretaste of the marriage supper to come, where God, where the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Pray with me. Oh God, we thank you that you have not left us alone. Instead, you see us, you remember us, and you have pursued us to the uttermost in Jesus. Lord, I pray that when you feel far off, we would sense your presence and know that you are near. I pray that you would nourish our faith by your spirit through this bread and wine, that as a community in hopeful waiting, we would indeed receive a foretaste of the feast that awaits us. 
and that here and now we would taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.